Good morning. I invite you now to join me once again in a word of prayer. God of peace, we have heard and witnessed your story and now are ready to prepare ourselves for the spirit to come upon us, to lead us in the direction that you will lead us. You have given us so much to be thankful for this past Easter. We ask that you will open our eyes to continue recognizing your resurrection, your son as the Messiah, and that we may receive the grace that has been bestowed upon us. Come now and be among us, that we may see clearly your suffering, the holes in your hands, the wound in your side, and understand through this suffering what you have done. We read where Jesus said, blessed are those who have not been able to see literally as Thomas did, but yet believe and receive the Holy Spirit and go into the world preaching to all the nations. We ask that you continue to allow us to peer through our need to literally see into your truth, to see truly your love for justice in all we read, your compassion for your people in all we see, and your calling for us to follow the example Christ has set for us. We await your Holy Spirit to fill us and lead us into the world and among each other to model the great example of love that we have seen. Breathe on us, breath of God. Fill us with life anew, that we may love the way you love and do what you would do until our hearts are pure and our wills are one with yours, that we may not perish, but live with you for all eternity. Amen. Jesus Christ, my living hope. 
one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. My living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. The buried body began to so good to see you this morning, to sing with you, to share donuts with you. It has been quite a morning together. And it's a privilege now to gather around these words of Scripture. As we do, I just want to give you a preview over the next few Sundays between now and the day of Pentecost, uh, at least the church's celebration of Pentecost. There are 50 days that stretch between Easter and Pentecost, sometimes called the Great 50 Days. And in this season of Easter, we're going to be reflecting on the gifts the risen Jesus brings to us. Looking at his life, and particularly in many of his own resurrection appearances to his disciples, how does that speak to us about the living of our days? And so today we're going to begin that journey, remembering that Jesus brings us reassurance. Specifically, reassurance when we doubt, when our faith tank runs low, Jesus meets us with reassurance. We find this very uh, clearly in the story of Jesus' encounter with Thomas and the other disciples in the upper room 
eight days after that first Easter, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. So we're going to be focusing on Thomas, also called Didymus, that was his nickname, the twin. The problem is we never meet his twin. We don't know who his twin might be, who he or she might be. But twins, we can all resonate with at one level. A couple of years ago, I was at a Carolina football game, and as I was leaving the stadium, I saw Mark Kovalevsky. And it was, he didn't have a lane, which was very odd, but that's okay. I saw Mark, and I ran pop, 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 all the way across that big concrete patio, yelling his name, getting in his face, saying, hey, how you doing? Expecting some sort of warm greeting, but this guy was oddly cold. And um, looked at me with sort of a puzzled look, and then he finally said, I'm Carl, Mark's twin brother. And it was uncanny. One, I didn't know you had a twin. And there's kind of variations on twins. Some you can still tell apart. Mark and Carl are awfully close. Carbon copies mirror images of one another to look at. And so even though we don't know who Thomas's twin is, some scholars, some commentators suggest that maybe instead of looking somewhere in the biblical world for Thomas's twin running around, his story tells us a story about ourselves that is so reflective of our reality 
Maybe to find Thomas's twin, we just need to look in the mirror. Tell me if Thomas's circumstance doesn't resonate with you. But I'll begin with this quote. This is from a poet named Amy Hunter. In an article in the Christian Century a few years ago, she wrote these words. Five years ago, I had emergency surgery. My sister, a professor with final exams to give, was getting married in less than a week. Yet, she drove from New York City to Massachusetts in a snowstorm to see me in the hospital. No phone call could reassure her that I was alive. She had to see me with her own eyes. Sometimes the demand to see is not doubt, she says. Sometimes it is even love. Sometimes the demand to see is not doubt. Sometimes it is even love. And so today, rather than sort of therapeutically assuring you that doubts are okay, we all have them, join the club, I want to take a step further and suggest to you that doubt, as part of our faith life, has dignity, it has transformational power if we faithfully meet our doubts with hopefulness. It's Frederick Buechner who said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. And there's a strong connection between our doubts and our skepticism and true growth in our faith. Danny captured it really beautifully. Ask those questions. Children lead the way. And by the way, how exciting is it to see back here in the Rockers this whole playground back there just full of children? The children might lead the way for us. Thomas is a character who doesn't simply show up here. He's known for this one question, for this one moment. And how many of us want to be pigeonholed for that one statement we made that if we had a little more time, we would have walked back and maybe asked differently or done differently? We call him Doubting Thomas. But Thomas is actually a really robust figure in John's gospel. We hear him speak three times, not just this once. And in the course of Thomas's uh, expression to Jesus and around Jesus, we discover some very important characteristics of his doubting life. One, he is perceptive enough to be able to separate his desires from the reality of the moment. He's also humble enough to admit when he doesn't know and he is willing to ask to be taught. And he's willing to change his mind when there's new evidence that is impressed upon him. This is an important lesson for us to learn. So let's just hear those three vignettes for a moment before we reflect a little more thoroughly on John chapter 20 today. The first happens in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. There is no doubt. There is no doubt at all. And the word has come to Jesus and the disciples by way of Lazarus' sisters that they want him to come to Bethany. He's sick, and they're alarmed, though the disciples are, that Lazarus lives far away. They have to cross the Mount of Olives. They have to go through Jerusalem. And Jesus had just been that way. And he had antagonized the Jewish authorities very recently. They, in fact, had tried to stone him, but he had escaped. 
If Jesus went to Bethany right now, even for such a great reason like caring for a sick friend who was near unto death, the word that Jesus was back in that region would soon get to Jerusalem, and he and probably the disciples would be in great danger. They tried to stone him once. Do you think they'll fail again? How much prayer went into that decision whether or not to go? How much prayer went into the, the timing of when to go? Two days, we find out. Two days later, Jesus tells his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And his disciples try and talk him out of it. But Jesus is now determined to go. And it was Thomas who speaks up and he utters these words that we know in Scripture. He spoke at that critical moment where the disciples are resisting Jesus' call to step faithfully through the danger to minister to their hurting friend. Let us go, he said, that we may die with him. This is one foolish, naive statement. This is a person with a clear-eyed sense of what lay in front of him, and he did not want to imperil himself any more than the rest of us would, and yet he was able to look through those desires to follow Jesus and to vocally lead the way. Jesus had made up his mind to go on that risky mission, and Thomas is ready to follow. That's emblematic of Thomas's faith. So before we sequester him to some sort of second-hand status as someone who needs a little more than the rest, I think we may be very mistaken. The second episode where we find Thomas speaking up and speaking out of his heart takes place in that difficult night as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what was about to happen to him, his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. And he wanted them to know, above all, that they would need to pray, that they would need to draw strength from God in that ordeal that was coming. He reassured them that what they saw in him was the deepest truth about God, and that in God, even the worst things in this life are never the last things. And so in John chapter 14, we hear those words from Jesus that we share at our own critical times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you also will be. And you know the way. You know the road to where I am going. And what an intense moment and confusing. Jesus has spoken now about his father's house, and he's spoken about this road to get there. And I wonder how long the silence lasted as the disciples looked to each other, kind of scrambling on their phone, looking for the GPS coordinates, thinking through all of the highways and the byways they'd ever traveled. How do we get to the father's house? Looking at each other, mystified, bum-fuzzled, but nobody's going to ask that question. They don't want to feel stupid in front of everybody else, but it's Thomas who speaks up. He says, Lord, we don't know where we're going. How can we know the road? And of course, Jesus responds, I am the road. I am the truth. I am the life. 
No one comes to the Father except by me. A powerful moment. I'm pretty sure Thomas was not the only disciple wondering what Jesus was talking about, but he was the only one to acknowledge it. And you know, I admire Thomas for doing that, for acknowledging what it is he really didn't know. And he was authentic enough in that moment to be truthful, and he was humble enough to ask. Pride can be such a big barrier to our own seeking. Pride can be such a big barrier to our own understanding. Sometimes we get so set and fixed in our adamant positions, usually based on the past, something we've acquired in the past, something we've become convinced about in the past. We're too proud to admit that we are in concrete. Sometimes we won't even admit it to ourselves, even as new data, even as new evidence provokes us to reconsider where we are and where we need to be as we continue to learn and explore our life of faith and the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We need to be teachable and we need to ask. That's how James counseled his disciples. You don't have because you don't ask. It's not enough just to ask the right questions. None of us asks the right questions. Even more important, it's on us to be humble enough to listen for the real answers. Whether it's in our conversations with one another, whether it's in our prayer life, in our devotional life with God through Jesus Christ. Thomas leads the way by showing us the humility that's required to be teachable as a student of Jesus. And so we have a very faithful soul willing to ask the questions and willing to receive the answers who's now labeled as a doubter. Who can blame him for this experience? What we heard about today takes place after the resurrection. The worst of the worst has happened. Jesus has appeared on Easter in multiple places. There are women who came back from the tomb who said the tomb was empty. Some of the disciples went to verify that testimony. They came back, found out it was empty. Mary Magdalene had a personal vision and experience where Jesus spoke about his ascension to the Father, and he commissions her to go and tell the disciples. There's all of this mind-boggling news swirling about that Jesus is alive. Some people have actually been with him, and Thomas... Thomas simply can't sign on to that claim unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in those nail marks, my hand in his side, I won't believe. But maybe the call to see isn't so much exemplification of our doubt, but is instead an expression of love. Thomas surely loved Jesus we can see that in his heartfelt expressions, even in John's gospel. Now, Peter and John were equally skeptical about the testimony of others, but we don't call them doubting Peter, doubting John. Thomas isn't defective on this point. When Thomas is with them the next week, Jesus appears to Thomas and here he doesn't reprimand, he doesn't chastise Thomas, but instead opens his life wide, showing his hands. 
showing his side and inviting Thomas close to touch him. You know, it's interesting. John doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually followed through. We don't know if he actually reached in and poked around and felt it, whether that was necessary. After Jesus appears in that time of real vulnerability, a critical time in his own life as a disciple, and instead of meeting him with rebuke, with chastisement for the questions he has, it is with grace and an open life that he presents himself as he is to Thomas. It's a powerful statement, I think, for us about how Jesus meets those who bring honest and sincere questions about faith. Now, more than ever, it seems to me there is a great deal that is being considered and reconsidered. It happens in all of our lives as we make our way through the life cycle, as we grow up, as we enter into young adulthood, as we might or might not get married, as we try and raise children or have a household, as we begin to lose parts of ourselves, friendships, relationships, even bodily capacities. Everything changes, and it's always up for grabs. And we ask the questions again and again and again, and something that seems so firm and so certain back then is no longer quite enough to carry us into the future. And the word for today is that Jesus meets us with his life open wide, presenting himself again as he is. He did it for our twin. And he'll do it for us as well. I think the question for us as a church is whether we're going to be the sort of community that can withstand the challenge of living as a community of doubters, of seekers, of those who ask questions. Sometimes we come to church with a great deal of strength in our faith, but are we going to be willing at that point to let people in this community ask hard questions? Even if for you, those questions are asked and answered, and they're settled and most certain, can you be a part of a community that continues to ask those questions without shutting them down or shaming them? Will you be part of a community that's willing to bear with those who need a little more reassurance that Christ is real? That scriptures can be trusted, that God's call upon us toward holiness is for our good? Or will we compound the growing doubt problem in our nation and in our world by simply being overly zealous hunters of heresy? and getting defensive and putting others down, or offering overly simplistic answers that won't suffice for all the ambiguities and all the challenges that we face. When somebody sincerely and strongly disagrees with one of your favorite soapboxes, are you going to rush to bury them in piles of, of argumentation or proof texts? Or will you sit Will you listen 
where you try and understand the place that person is coming from. And will you model for them what Jesus has shown us before Thomas? Will we be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry? That's how James told the Christians to behave. That's the kind of fellowship I'd love to be a part of. A place that is sanctuary, truly, for all the modern Thomas twins out there who might ask their questions, but leave knowing that they have experienced Jesus as he is because they have seen Jesus in us. And of course, in showing Jesus and who we have found him to be might be somehow persuasive for them in to, to be no longer disbelieving but to believe, as Jesus told Thomas. I think the crucial command for us is something that's tucked away that we rarely read in the letter of Jude, of all places. It doesn't even have chapters, it's just a verse. Jude 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt, because you never know when it might be you and your time to wrestle with a sincere question. And will you be treated in the way you treat others? How would that impact the posture you take week in, week out, in the face of the great questions that confront us each and every day? Be patient, be present, be understanding. Listen for how the Spirit is speaking in your life and in those to whom you listen. Above all, honor that legacy of our twin doubting Thomas. And whatever you do, whatever you say, let it in some way point to his glory and his honor. That the life you live before a watching world, which has every reason to doubt, might be persuaded because you have said, my Lord and my God, and meant it. Amen.